There's nothing as discouraging as putting your hope into something that doesn't pan out the way you wanted it to. If you've lived long enough, you have experienced discouragement, right? When you put your hope into something, you longed for something, you had your ideas of what something was going to be like, and it doesn't come out the way you expected it to. And so you think, I will never put my hope into anything again. (laughs) Have you ever felt such discouragement in the Christian life? I mean, there's nothing that we invest in as much as our faith in Christ is there. How discouraging can it be when things don't appear to be working out the way we expected it to, the way we imagined it to turn out? There is hardly anything more discouraging than this. And you might be surprised to find out that there are many, and some of the greatest men in church history, who have experienced such discouragement in their Christian faith. And we can begin by just looking at the 11 disciples, right? Remember the discouragement and despondency they felt when all their hopes came crashing to the ground. Their Messiah, the one who was going to save them, was crucified. So they kind of went into hiding, didn't they? How about Adoniram Judson, who was so depressed in Burma that he dug his own grave and waited for God to kill him. How about Martin Luther, who was so discouraged that he gave up preaching for more than nine months in 1530? Discouragement is not uncommon. But today, in our passage, we have God's answer for discouragement. God's answer for his people who are tempted to be discouraged, those who are in exile, like us, have God's answer. And what is his answer? Is the servant of God. The servant of God has something to tell us today, and we need to listen. If we're to have encouragement, if we're not to be in despair, if we're not to be discouraged in this life, we have to listen to what the servant of God has to say. And what the servant of God is going to say is he's going to tell us about himself. He's going to show us who he is and what he has done. And that is God's answer for our discouragement. So in this time of thanksgiving, let us be thankful that God has given us his servant. And that because of his servant, we don't have to be in despair. We can rejoice and give thanks. We have every reason to rejoice and give thanks. This is the second of the four servant songs in Isaiah. And I want us to remember, and this is so important, that we remember that God knows where to bring us encouragement from. There is nowhere else to go to find encouragement than where God has to give it to us. And where God finds it and he brings it to us. That is the place where you're going to find true encouragement. So whenever we hear God saying comfort, encouragement, this is how you do. We need to listen with our full intention because we want comfort and we want it in the right place. And God loves to give it to us. And in fact, this is going to be one long message from chapter 40 
to chapter 60 about God's comfort and encouragement. But we absolutely need to hear it. So the servant has something to say, and he's immediately surprising by what he has to tell us. He is simply calling on the nations, the farthest away nations, to hear what he has to say. And what's surprising about this is that he is not singling out the Jewish people. He's calling for the nations to hear him. Listen to this. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. So who is the servant who is speaking? Well, we will find out later on as we continue on that the servant is the Messiah. The servant is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Who are the coastlands that he is calling for? Whenever you see the word coastlands like this, you should immediately think he's probably speaking of just the farthest away nations. And in this case, the farthest away nations and everyone in between, from the Jewish people who are nearest to the nations who are farthest away. So it might sound strange to you that he is calling on the nations rather than the Jewish people. Why is he calling out the nations right now rather than just singling out the Jewish people? And we have to remember that the last chapter was God calling for his people to hear him. He was calling for Israel to hear his voice, for Jacob to hear what he has to say. He is saying that you have refused to listen to me. You have not listened to my voice. And he calls them to listen to him because in listening to his voice, there is found salvation. But his people were refusing to listen to him. And this chapter shows that God's mission goes far beyond the Jewish people. That God's mission extends to the whole world, to the nations. God has people throughout the nations whom he is going to call and bring to himself. His elect people throughout the nations, he's going to bring to himself. And so he calls out to them, both Jews and Gentiles. And this passage is really bringing that out to us. Amazingly, God's message of comfort extends to the nations and to all who will listen to his voice. And this is good news to us, isn't it? Because we are from the nations. And this, is, this means that we have comfort today, that we can have comfort if we listen to God's voice. So listen, listen to what God has to say. So what does the servant have to say to the nations that should bring us comfort? As the servant, as he is revealed more and more, the comfort we should have is found in him. So we need to listen to what he has to say here. So be comforted that the servant has been called by God before his birth to fulfill his mission. Listen to these words. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. Now there's a couple, couple reasons why we should find comfort in this. Well, first of all, it means that he has been called to a unique purpose. The servant has been called to a unique purpose from God. It's kind of like Jeremiah. When someone's called before their birth, it's telling us that God has a unique purpose for this person. And Jeremiah was similarly called before his birth, right? And being called means he did not take his ministry on his own. 
He did not take up this ministry on his own, but he was given it by the Father. And that means also that the Father will make sure that it is fulfilled. This ministry will be fulfilled. This ministry will be successful. And what's interesting is he was even given a name before his birth. And we're not told what that name is. It's kind of like a teaser, isn't it? What is the name he's given? And we already know what his name is, don't we? We know his name is Emmanuel. He is God with us. We know he is Jesus who saves. And he's Jesus who saves because he is Emmanuel, because he is God with us. So be comforted that God made him a mighty weapon of war. And he is a great warrior. That's really the picture that's being painted for us. And he has been concealed for a proper time to fulfill his warlike mission. (laughs) Look at this in verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, and his quiver he hid me away. So the emphasis here is that God has made him this mighty warrior. And that's good news, isn't it? We need a mighty warrior. But two times it says God has made him. God has made him a warrior. Equipped him to fight. But notice something very different about the way he fights. And this is what separates him from from Cyrus. The, the, The servant before this has often been Cyrus or Israel. But here, the servant is someone else. And he doesn't fight the way Cyrus fights. He doesn't fight with swords as physical swords, as you would imagine. But his weapon is the sword that comes out of his mouth. His very word. That's how he defeats his enemy. And that's how he fights. And that's how he defends his people, isn't it? That's his weapon. He fights with his word. In fact, the servant is the word of God incarnate, isn't he? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So here is the word of God who has come to us who is equipped for battle. In Revelation, we see the servant described with the same symbolism, a sword coming out of his mouth. And through that symbolism, you can understand what is being meant here by a sword coming out of his mouth. As we studied this morning in Revelation, it's amazing to see these passages and these ideas, these symbols kind of intertwine. Well, the sword strengthens to protect his people In Revelation chapter 1 through 3, his church is protected and defended by his sword that comes out of his mouth. And the same word that brings comfort and protection to his people is the same word that brings vengeance on his enemies in Revelation 19 and defeats them. This is the sword that pierces our hearts and divides our hearts and and exposes what's in there and heals and mends up. And it's the same sword that defeats our enemies. Notice something else unusual that is emphasized about this warrior. What does it say here? It says that he is hidden. He is concealed for a time. It's as if he's this arrow that's in the shaft, right? That's ready to be shot at the proper time. And at the right time, God will send out his arrow. And it will accomplish its purpose and defeat his enemy. And deliver his people. God's timing is perfect, and he will accomplish his purpose 
in his perfect timing. But know this, that the servant is equipped as a sword and as an arrow to accomplish God's mission. I can't help but think of the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus spoke and said, I am he, right? And everyone fell down at his word. John 18, verse 6. What an amazing word of God that we have with us. Be comforted at the general description of what God set him apart to do. God set him apart to faithfully fulfill the function that only the servant of God could do in glorifying God to his fullest. Listen to verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. You know, if you didn't know any better, when you heard Israel, you would immediately think he's talking about the Jewish people, wouldn't you? The nation of Israel. And there's nothing explicitly that says here it's not talking about them, does it? But Israel was in fact especially called to fulfill the task of being God's servant. Listen to some of these ways that Israel was described to understand what God called her to do. Israel was called God's firstborn son while in Egypt. From Exodus 4, verse 22. Israel was chosen as the one through whom God's promises to Abraham would be fulfilled. Israel was the one through whom all the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12, verse 3. Israel was chosen to be a nation of priests. Exodus 19, verse 5 through 6. In other words, Israel was chosen from before birth to be God's servant. But Israel's history is one of what? Israel's history is one of failure to do what God called her to do. Israel failed to do what God called her to do in glorifying himself. She failed to glorify God and be faithful as a servant. And really, she could not have been faithful from the very beginning (laughs) because of her sinful nature. She was after the likeness of Adam, and we have to remember that. The Messiah, on the other hand, will function faithfully as the servant of God. He will bring glory to God through standing in the place of his people. He is the perfect fulfillment of all that Israel was meant to be. He embodies what the nation of Israel was called to do. He, unlike Israel, is the true vine, the light of the world. And amazingly, Jesus said this, and no one else could have said this. He says, I have finished the work that you have called me to do. Jesus is the only one who could have said that. He said, when he was dying, he says, it is finished. It is finished. Those words belong to Jesus alone. No one ever could have said this throughout history. Not even the greatest throughout history. One man said this, Jesus is unique, is the unique theater where God's glory is put on display. But he is more than simply a contrast to Israel's unfaithfulness. He actually succeeds in her place as the true, for the true believing elect remnant of Israel. He succeeds in the place of Israel, of the believing elect Israel. He is in her place, faithful to God. What an awesome Savior is Christ Jesus our Lord. He alone is able to restore Israel to its proper relationship with God. He alone is able to bear fruit for God and to cause his people to bear fruit. You see this most clearly in the New Testament in such places as Hosea 11 verse 1. Listen to this. 
out of Egypt I called my son, is applied to Jesus in Matthew 2, verse 15. Amazing statement. But then in verse 4, it's as if the servant looks as it, as, uh, what he has accomplished and sees that everything is a failure. It's, it's as if he sees everything he's accomplished and sees a problem here. It looks as if everything I have done is vanity, as if I've accomplished absolutely nothing. It's as if I've failed. And if appearance was the standard of success, the servant really was a failure. How discouraging. Listen to these words. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Now understand that the problem here is not work ethic. The problem here is not labor. He has spent his strength. He has labored with everything he has. It is not a failure of strength or labor. His ministry results chart looked like he was a big failure, didn't it? Like it was all vanity, like he had nothing to show. And so you wonder, how in the world did his ministry look like failure? Well, remember that everywhere he went, he was met by unbelief and opposition. His ministry ended with 11 disciples who fled and left him and deserted him. He was crucified by his own people. He died on a cross. He met failure after failure after failure. This is why he was called a man of sorrows. One of the commentators summarized his ministry like this. Jesus lived the only perfect life that has ever been lived. He preached the only perfect sermons that have ever been preached. He did signs and wonders in number and in magnitude that boggles the mind. He poured himself out day after day for the Jewish people. Yet they despised and rejected him and formally condemned him to death. So if we looked at appearance, Jesus would have been discouraged. He would have been in despair. He would have given up and stopped what he was doing if it was based on appearance. And I think every one of us, every one of us would have given up. And every one of us would have moved to discouragement. Now be careful here. When you hear these words, don't think that it is sinful to acknowledge that by appearance it looks like the outcome of what he has done is vanity. Don't think that somehow it's sinful for Jesus to say that. Jesus has not moved to despair here. <laughs> he has not moved to unbelief. He is simply acknowledging the reality of what things appear like on the outside. It appears like it is vanity. If anything, we glorify God most by acknowledging our condition to its fullest so that God can be fully honored in delivering us from our condition. We need to learn how to lament, don't we? How many servants of God have been exactly where the servant is at this time, having labored for years and seen no fruit as a result? Some have poured out their hearts and have no apparent success after years and years of service. And even they feel the, the weight of it from those around them who look at them as failures. 
How many have faithfully served in a church in any capacity only to end up with a divided church and to feel like you've failed for years all of your ministry, like it's all been in vanity? How many pastors have labored for years and have almost nothing to show for it? How many parents have labored for years and seen nothing from what they have put in? It is easy to move to discouragement and disillusionment in such cases. In fact, your life might look like this right now. You might be looking at your life and wondering, where is the fruit? <laughs> where are the results? It appears vanity. But be comforted. Be comforted by the words of the servant. He gives us the answer in the cure for discouragement. He tells us how to respond to such circumstances in his response right here. Listen to what he says. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Jesus did not cave in to discouragement. You see, we are prepared for this response from the first servant uh, song in Isaiah 42 verse 4 where we are told that he will not grow faint or be discouraged. And so we know that Jesus, although he faces the greatest opposition, although he faces the greatest weight of, dis, of, of potential discouragement on his back, yet he will succeed through it all and be faithful to God. So what is the answer to discouragement and unbelief and despair and hopelessness? Well, the answer is not to look chiefly at visible results or appearance of things, but rather to God himself. Look to God himself. Look to the one who has made the promises. Look to his character. Look to his wisdom. Look to his words. Look to his greatness and his great power and the promises of God. Do not look at your results as the basis for your comfort and encouragement. Do not look at the appearance of things. Otherwise, you will be discouraged. But look to God. Look to God. We have to remember that God has hidden himself. There is a temporary intentional hiddenness from God, awaiting for justice and reward, isn't there? Part of the hiddenness of the kingdom of God will look like failure around us. When we look around us, it will look like nothing is happening. We just do not see the justice nor the rewards in this life. The only way we can endure by faith is if we believe that God will do right, that his reward is with him, and he will bring righteousness to bear. This is how Jesus, according to 1 Peter 2, verse 23, was able to endure. Listen to these words. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Just like Jesus, we must believe that our right is at his right hand and that our reward is with him. We have to believe that and we have to continue on with that in our minds and in our understanding. We must leave the success and the results with God. Just be faithful. This requires that we live by faith and not by sight. You know, this really isn't surprising, isn't it? This is exactly as we should imagine it to be. We should have confidence in the future reward that awaits us. Hebrews 12 verse 2 tells us that this is how Jesus conducted himself. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. 
What amazement we will find when we stand on the other side of eternity and look back. But today we live by faith and not by sight. And we keep our eyes on him. Albert Barnes said this regarding our perspective. At the close of life and in heaven, we shall see occasion to bless God for all his dealings with us. We shall see that we have not suffered one pain too much or been required to perform one duty too severe. We shall see that our afflictions as well as our mercies were designed for our good and were needful for us. Why then should we not bless God in the furnace as well as in the palace, on a bed of pain as well as on a bed of down, in want as well as when sitting down in the splendid banquet? God knows what is best for us, and that is the way in which he leads us. Mysterious though it seems to be now, we will, it will be seen to be, have been full of goodness and mercy. So keep being faithful and keep looking to God and trust him with the results. Be comforted by knowing the specific work that the Father accomplished through his servant in bringing glory to himself. The mission he will accomplish by God's power is much more glorious than anything we could imagine. The servant explains part of this mission in verse 5. That this mission includes the saving of the remnant of the elect among the Jewish people. Listen to verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my salvation, my strength. So listen to what God does. He brings his people to himself. He saves his remnant, his believing people, and he brings them to himself in his kingdom. And he says here, this is a glorious mission. God is a God who saves, who fulfills his purposes. And this is greater than the exile. This is greater than bringing people back from, from Babylonian exile. This is the opening of the eyes of the blind. This is the saving of those who were in darkness and bringing them to himself. One man says the strength here that he finds from God is the word in Hebrew, uzi. So it says, Yah is my uzi. God is my strength. God is my strength and God will do it. As great as this is, as glorious as, is the, as this is right here, God says he will accomplish something even greater through his servant. In verse 6, he says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. God says this is too light. This is not weighty enough. This is not glorious enough. I have something greater that I'm going to do. I'm not only going to save those from the Jewish people, I'm going to also save those throughout the whole world. What an amazing work God says he's going to do. He's going to make Jesus to be a light to the nations, to bring people from the farthest corners of the earth to himself. This is not plan B. <laughs> This is not some separate plan that God came up with. This was always God's intention. God always intended to bring people from the farthest corners of the earth, from every tribe and every nation to himself. What an awesome plan that God 
has put into motion and that he is fulfilling even today. And he does this through repentance and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's how he accomplishes this mission. And this means that despite the appearance of things, when we look around us, the appearance of things is one thing, but the servant will succeed in glorifying God in the most glorious and complete and full way imaginable. Jesus reflects the glory of God where all others have failed. And he will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Be comforted by the great reversal that the servant will accomplish. And that's what we see in verses 7 through 8. And you have to keep in your mind that what we see outwardly is one thing, but God is doing a work in which he reverses things, a great reversal here. In verse 7, look at the strange way that God works his salvation. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and this Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Listen, he was abhorred. He was a servant of rulers. He was hated. He was despised. This is a strange way to bring about salvation, isn't it? But notice the great measure of success in that the great reversal, these kings will bow to him and they will find salvation. Listen, kings shall see and arise princes and they shall prostrate themselves to him. What an amazing thought that God reverses things that God brings about salvation, that even the rulers bow to him. The rulers that hated him and despised him are now bowing to him. How will this come about? Well, this will come about because of God's faithfulness and his choosing. Listen to what it says here. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And I think verse 8 has to be read in light of verse 4. When you look at verse 4, you see this, this, this servant who looks at his work and it looks like it's all in vain. And so what we see in verse 8 is that God says, In the day of salvation I have heard your cry. And what I believe that means is that God in his day has heard the cry of his suffering servant and has accomplished the salvation that he came to do. And that's what we see in verse 8. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, and a day of salvation I have helped you. God has answered the cry of his servant. And he has accomplished the salvation that he has set out to accomplish. God, this, this is the day where God's work is vindicated. Where we see the salvation of his people throughout the whole world. Where kings who once hated him will bow to him. And Paul confirms that this is the day that we are in, in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, as he quotes from these words here and refers them to the work that Jesus has accomplished. At an acceptable time I listened to you, and the day of salvation I helped you. See, now is the acceptable time, now is the day of salvation. And we see this happening all around us, don't we? As people turn to Christ, as people repent of their sins and bow to King Jesus, we are seeing that this is the day of salvation. What an amazing thing that we are not only God's reward. We are the reward that he has accomplished. But we are also a part of bringing forth his reward. 
aren't we? As we bring the good news of the gospel to people around us every day. We have an awesome mission from God, not only to be his reward when we are saved, but also to be a part of his mission in bringing his word to the world around us. Be, be comforted at the description of God's saving work that the servant will accomplish in delivering his people to its fullness. We see that in verses 8 through 12. God will give his servant as a covenant for all his people who believe throughout the world. Jesus is the covenant from God. Listen to what it says. I'll keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritage, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness up here. Jesus is God's covenant to us. This covenant in context is not just for Israel, but for all who believe. For the entire world of those who will believe in Christ. And this means that all the promises of God come through Jesus Christ. And we see the results of this covenant and that the exiles return. The spiritual exiles who are in bondage return to God from both Jews and Gentiles to his promised land to their inheritance in the kingdom of God. And that's what we see happening all around us. We are released from the dungeon of sin. And notice that all he has to do is speak sovereignly. And they come out of the darkness and out of their prisons to the freedom of their inheritance. What an awesome Savior. God will provide for his people not just freedom from captivity, but a safe pilgrimage home to the promises of God. We see that in verses 9 9 through 12. The language here, if you look at it, is that of caring and protecting and shepherding. God feeds his people. God shepherds his people. God takes care of them. And it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy road. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be difficulties, but that God will take you and protect you and bring you safely into his kingdom. This means that in this tumultuous world, and we do live in a tumultuous world, don't we? That we can be assured that God will take care of you as our shepherd. If you are in Christ, he will take care of you. He will preserve you. He will keep your faith alive to the very end. And that's really what we need, isn't it? And that's what God provides. This is not primarily about a return from Babylon this is a massive impouring into the kingdom of God. And the return from Babylon is assurance that God will do this, isn't it? That God will accomplish his ends. This is a picture of the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth and God bringing his people into safely into his kingdom from bondage to freedom, from darkness to light as his children. So the, the servant has spoken, hasn't he? The servant has spoken. And the question is, what is our response to this? What is our response? How do we respond to this great news? And the answer is, verse 13, rejoice. Here is something to give thanks for this Thanksgiving. The mountains rejoice. The earth rejoices. Everything rejoices. This is what causes rejoicing. There is nothing else that can compel true in unending, eternal rejoicing than the work of the servant who is our Savior. This is what causes songs of praise, unending songs of praise to come out of our mouths. 
And that is the right response from this. That is the right response. Ask God to help you to hear the words of the servant. Ask God to help you to understand who the servant is and to respond properly with rejoicing. Is this your response today? Are you discouraged, believer? Does your life appear like it's been spent in vain? Do you see little success? Are you tempted to be discouraged, paralyzed, despondent? Well, here is your answer today. Look to God. Look to his servant. Find courage and strength through him. And know that your right is with God. And that the reward is with him. And don't judge your condition by the appearance or the results of things in your life. Look to your Savior. Look to him for your comfort and assurance today. He is your righteousness he is your hope. He is your salvation. So the servant is calling for you to hear what he has to say. Will you listen? And maybe you need to repent and turn to God today. Maybe you have never heard his voice before. And today for the first time you hear that he is the only one who can deliver you out of the darkness. And if that is you, then I encourage you. I, I, I ask of you to repent of your sin and to look to him Believe in him and the work he has accomplished on the cross. He is the risen Savior. He is the only one who can deliver you from your sin and bring you safely into his kingdom. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you for your servant, God. We thank you for Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, who delivers us from our darkness and despair, who delivers us from our dungeon, Lord, our chains to our sin and rebellion. We thank you for the freedom that we find in Christ. We thank you that you are even today delivering us and bringing us into your kingdom. That you have saved us if we are looking to you. That you are saving us and that you will save us. And so, Lord, where else can we look? We look to you. We rejoice in your salvation we rejoice in your goodness. We praise you, Lord, for looking on us in our humble estate, for looking at us in our rebellion and reaching down and saving us. Lord, what can we do but praise you? Lord, and I pray that you would bring salvation to this church. I pray that you bring salvation to those who are outside of your kingdom, who are in a terrible place today. I pray that they would look to you as the only one who can save us from our sin. And Lord, I thank you that you will save that you are powerful to save, and that you love to save. It is your reward that you have accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen.